I'm Tom Whitmore. I'm an MJ-12 researcher, and you are listening to Dead Hand Radio. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for being here. Uh, the information that you sent me via email is fascinating. And I was uh, instantly intrigued. But to to spare the listeners a bunch of Q&A and me trying to fumble through your bio, would you... Just give me an overview of how you got started on this topic. I was born in the 1950s, and I grew up with the kind of Cold War uh, activities and events that were occurring. And I was exposed to the kind of scientific, or, I'm sorry, science fiction TV shows and movies that were coming out then. Uh, in the early 60s, I came across a couple of books by Donald Kehoe. Uh, about UFOs, and I read those, but I, I didn't get active in the UFO field until the very late 1980s and early 1990s, at the time that the MJ-12 documents came into the public domain. And when I first saw the Eisenhower briefing document, uh, I was fascinated because my first impression was it had something to do with espionage. And uh, most of my adult life, I've done a lot of reading about history and European history. I've learned a lot about uh, how states operate. And I became interested in espionage during the 1980s. And I really uh, began reading up on that. So when the MJ-12 documents came out, uh, they really struck me as very interesting in my, my line of interest. Excellent. I, I like that you mentioned the Cold War. That's a nice tie-in with the theme of our of the podcast. Uh, you being born in the 50s, growing up through the 60s and 70s, um, is a very intriguing part of history. And uh, if you would, I'd like to explore that just a little bit and talk about some of the experiences that you had as far as what you remember about the threat of nuclear war with Soviet Union and the the state of affairs in the world at that time, if you remember anything like that? Well, uh, during the 50s, there was a lot of uh, a fear about nuclear war, and it, it definitely came out in the entertainment media. For example, in, in uh, the Twilight Zone, uh, one of my vivid memories is, is about the man that uh, uh, went in, into, uh, inadvertently went into a safe room and then came out and the, the world had been destroyed. He was the only one left. Uh, and there were, other, uh, there were other Twilight Zone type shows you know, that touched on that. My own dad was a, a, a pilot uh, for a defense contractor, Douglas Aircraft. So he was very much involved on the on the defense end, and and you know we get we got a vibe uh, from that, and of course you know we 
I was at an age when the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, came into play, and I remember seeing on TV how tense that was, and 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 how dangerous it was. Uh, and reading uh, history and current events, I was I was acutely aware of the Soviet Union during the 1980s because I had read uh, several books by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, The Gulag Archipelago, and I had read a number of books about uh, Soviet history from the 20s on. So I was very, uh, very aware of the Soviet Union. Union. And of course, the Reagan administration was uh, highly concerned about them. And they had invaded Afghanistan. So uh, I was paying attention to those kind of things. I've had other guests on who've talked about their recollection of the the moments surrounding the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I, w- I wasn't alive at that time. I was born in 66, so shortly after that. But uh, Cuban Missile Crisis took place in 62, uh, or the end of 62. And um, it was a period of, of peop- where people actually thought that nukes were going to be flying overhead. Do you remember specifically that being the case? Yes. And I don't personally remember being told to hide under our desks in case of a nuclear strike as if that was going to do any good. Uh, But I know other students during that age, you know, recall such things. Uh, The Cuban Missile Crisis was almost like the peak uh, of, of nuclear fear and paranoia. Um, fortunately, our leadership, at, at least at the White House level, was uh, they had the presence of mind to avoid that. Whereas I think President Kennedy was very concerned because there were some extremely hawkish uh, people in the, in the Joint Chiefs of Staff that wanted to bomb Cuba. One of them, I believe, was was Nathan Twining, who was one of the alleged MJ-12 members, ironically. Nice tie-in. And Nathan Twining was a real hawk. Do you think that uh, your interest in the Cold War and the association with the... uh, science fiction entertainment had any kind of influence on your interest in the UFO topic? Yes, uh, particularly the entertainment side, but uh, I, I developed a kind of a, almost a romantic association with flight and space flight. Uh, like I mentioned, my dad was a B-47 pilot my brother became an airline pilot. I'm not a flyer myself, but there's there's a certain romance to me about the more advanced aspects of flight training. Uh, you know, the guys that flew the uh, U-2s and the SR-71s. And in 1988, a program came out called UFO Cover Up Live, and. Uh, that was a recounting. Tom, can you 
Can you repeat? I'm sorry to interrupt you. There was a really loud sound that uh, covered what you were saying, and I couldn't hear what you were saying. Yeah, my apartment is next to a busy street. Oh, no problem. I, I don't mind if we have interruptions. I just might ask you to repeat something. And you were talking about the flight training and the romance of of that. Uh, uh-huh. And in 1988, a program came out by the name of UFO Cover-Up Live. And it's been roundly criticized and ridiculed by the more conservative UFO researchers. But during the program, there was a recounting of how the government supposedly had this super secret involvement with uh, extraterrestrials. And they had recovered UFOs and craft and uh, had agreements, you know, uh, they had an alien guest. So at the time, you know, I've, I've kind of begun to recognize my own personal gullibility factor. Uh, but at the time, I was, I was really, really amazed by that. I was intrigued by that. And I became a believer to the extent that long-term, I wanted to study the issue. Now, the longer I study it, the more skeptical I become. But that's, that's how it originated. Well, it's good that you're um, applying logical thinking to the topic and not just going down the rabbit hole and following every lead and believing what you're, what you're fed. Um, you, you said a couple of things that I, I would like to touch on. And um, yesterday, I, I believe it was yesterday, Chuck Yeager passed away. And when you were talking about the, the, the romance of flying and those early days of the, the um, high-speed jet program and those test pilots, it just reminded me of that. Chuck Yeager. Um, now, that was also uh, a key component of the Cold War. And I, I don't want to harp too much on the Cold War, but it's it's so all-encompassing for multiple generations. And the reason that we have heroes like Chuck Yeager is because of that Cold War. And so, you know, in my mind, as as troubling as it was and as much fear as it caused, there was also a lot of good that came out of that period. Yes, definitely. Um, now, Chuck Ray Yeager is a good example of a hero. Uh, the astronauts are good examples. But there are other examples of heroes that most people never hear about, and those are pilots and air crews that flew on the outskirts of the Soviet Union or even uh, penetrated Soviet airspace. And some of those were shot down. Uh, some of the pilots and air crews were killed. Some were captured. And they probably, they were probably never returned to the U.S. Now, Francis Gary Powers is, is an exception uh, because it was so high profile. But there are other pilots and air crews that I think were uh, kept in the Soviet Union, possibly even kept in an American-style village so that they could train deep cover Soviet agents uh, on American ways and mannerisms and, and uh, idioms. Interesting. There, you know, there's so much to the whole Cold War. I don't know all of it. I, 
I just have an interest in it. I, I'm not a historian or a scholar. I have an interest in this period of history. So I'm always learning something new. Uh, and that's why I like to talk about it. Now, going back to how it um, relates to your interest and in your study in the, in the area of UFOs and the MJ-12 documents, Would you like to continue from there? The MJ-12 affair began basically at the time that a book came out called The Roswell Incident. The Roswell Incident was a small paperback that was published by or authored by William Moore and Charles Berlitz. In 1978, Stanton Friedman met Jesse Marcel Sr. and interviewed him and came away with the impression that the Roswell incident uh, involved an extraterrestrial craft. Mm -hmm. And then Stanton Friedman and William Moore and others began interviewing witnesses. They, they interviewed, or they say they interviewed upwards of 90 plus witnesses. So that launched at least a decade or more of investigation into the Roswell incident. Now, William Moore uh, claims that he was contacted by a representative from AFOSI, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, namely a person by the name of Richard Doty, who, and he was recruited to inform on the activities of UFO groups and UFO in individuals, particularly a person by the name of Paul Benowitz. And William Moore, according to his uh, side of the story, is that he was on a quest to try to get to the bottom of what the US government really knew about UFOs. Because after the Roswell investigation, he, he, be, he began to believe that the U.S. government knew a whole lot more uh, about UFOs than they were, they were letting on, that they possibly had physical evidence. So he agreed uh, to this relationship to inform on UFO researchers and UFO groups in return for getting some quote-unquote inside information. And uh, this, this went on for several years. Now, what happened was at one point early in the game, William Moore received a document that has become known as the Aquarius Telex. And uh, Richard Doty and William Moore's other uh, alleged control, who, was, who he had named Falcon, they asked him to pass that document on to Paul Benowitz. Well, the reason why I mention this is because the Aquarius Telex is the first mention of MJ-12. And it was in that document that MJ-12 was mentioned. Now, they were getting involved with Paul Benowitz because Paul Benowitz was a, a scientist who had a, a business called Thunder Scientific Labs. And he was a, a, he was a government contractor. He lived directly next to Kirtland Air Force Base. Well, Paul Benowitz had 
gotten involved in cattle mutilation investigations in the 70s. And uh, he began to suspect that uh, the cattle mutilations were related to UFO activity. And he started observing Kirtland Air Force Base at night. And he began taking pictures. He took films. He took some measurements of changes in magnetic fields. And he became convinced that uh, UFOs and even aliens were landing and going on to Kirtland Air Force Base at night. So he contacted personnel on Kirtland Air Force Base and insisted that he knew that these UFO, UFOs and other UFO activity were occurring on Kirtland Air Force Base. Well, this apparently sent up red flags to the security people and the counterintelligence people at Kirtland. Uh, they realized that this person, uh, as deluded as he might be, was recording activities on Kirtland. And at the time, there were a number of highly classified programs going on at Kirtland Air Force Base. They were possibly running drones. They were, uh, the NSA was uh, conducting activities there. Uh, programs on Kirtland Air Force Base involved even deprogramming Soviet satellites to move them off their orbits. So the security and the counterintelligence people became, I think, extremely concerned about what Benowitz was doing. Well, you would think in a, in a situation like that, that the security people would, would go to him and say, look, you know, you're encroaching on classified activities. We want you to sign this non-disclosure agreement and we have to warn you to discontinue or you could be subject to further, you know, further uh, uh, even prosecution. But they didn't do that. What they did was uh, Richard Doty and possibly others got involved with Paul Benowitz and started trying to convince him that his beliefs about UFOs were real and that there, were, there was an underground alien base at a location known as Archuleta Mesa next to Dulce, New Mexico in Northwestern New Mexico, which is actually on a Hickorya Indian reservation. And Paul Benowitz really uh, went with this. And over time, uh, Paul Benowitz was very impressionable, even though he's a, he was a very uh, highly intelligent man, but he was very impressionable. And eventually he worked himself basically into a nervous and physical collapse. And Richard Doty has uh, been roundly criticized and even reviled and demonized as being uh, one of the key, key people involved in this. But part of the problem is we weren't there, I wasn't there, and we've only, I think that we've only heard part of the story. Uh, what year was this um, Rich Doty and Benowitz affair? Uh, it was basically from very, well, from early 1980 through 1988, uh, through 1984, 85. Oh, okay, so that went on for some time. Yeah. At some time, I've seen um, interviews with Richard Doty. In fact, there's a movie that he's uh, involved with, uh, Mirage Men. 
and he lays out a lot of detail about <clears throat> about that affair uh why he did what he did i don't understand it i think that you're correct that uh the military could have handled it better um with ndas it almost seems like they were trying out uh like a fledgling psyop program for sending uh researchers and scientists off the scent of what they were really doing by convincing them that they were looking at UFOs instead of uh, real human technology. Is that kind of what yes. you're... Uh... Well, there, Doty has been asked, why didn't they just ask Paul Benowitz to sign an NDA and warn him off? And he said that they it wasn't his decision. He was following orders and that the higher ups, you know, wanted to do it the way, the way that it was apparently done. Now, there, there are a couple of theories about the whole disinformation game and all of this. And one is that, and, and I wrote a paper about this that I published in my blog. Uh, I titled it uh, MJ-12, The Counterintelligence Angle. The idea being that during the 80s, the Reagan administration was extremely concerned about Soviet espionage and that they wanted to find out how many uh, spies there were in the US. And that uh, part of the effort was using UFO groups to one, uh, gain information and, and possibly uh, track uh, uh, the movement of information and, and uncover uh, possible spies. But at the same time, there, there, there was the effect of all this was to create such a cloud of confusion. And uh, people like to use the word disinformation, but basically a, a cloud of confusion and deception that sometimes it's, it's kind of hard to figure out what the real motivations are. Now, one, one possibility for having more inform on, say, APRO or MUFON is uh, AFOSI was feeding this information to Paul Benowitz. They were feeding uh, these ideas, and then Paul Benowitz was talking to people. And so by, by having more and possibly others inform on these UFO groups, they, they, could, uh, they could track how well these stories were were uh, being accepted, you know, were they circulating, and how how well was what what were these stories playing, and that that's one possible motivation. Did you say that this incident, uh, the Doty and Benowitz incident, occurred before the? Uh, alleged publication of the MJ-12 documents, or was that after? It was during uh, the first. The first. I'm sorry. When when was it? Uh, when was it distributed or supposedly dropped off at uh, the the uh, author's doorstep, more or less? Yeah, that that was in December of 1984. Okay, so it was 
towards the tail end of the uh, the Benowitz affair. Yeah, and they William Moore sat on it for two almost two and a half years before it became public in 1987. Now the as I mentioned the Aquarius Telex. Uh, was submitted to Moore and to Paul Benowitz early in the game. Then there was an incident of Linda Howe being shown a document that I refer to as the Carter briefing document. And she was shown that at Kirtland Air Force Base uh, with Richard Doty showing it to her. And she was uh, supposedly being monitored, you know, through a two-way mirror at the time, or at least at least recorded. In 1985, uh, William Moore and Jamie Chandray uh, discovered a document that's come to be known as the Cutler Twining Memo, and they discovered that in the National Archives, and the circumstances surrounding that are mysterious. They're they're questionable. And then in 1987, an author by the name of Timothy Good, uh, who was coming out with a book called Above Top Secret, he was going to publish the uh, MJ-12 documents in his book. And at that time, William Moore decided to release what he had, you know, so that he, he wouldn't be one-upped by Timothy Good. So by 1987, uh, uh, a couple of the MJ-12 documents were known. Now, uh, a few years later, William Moore came out with his book called the MJ-12 Documents, an analytical report, and that's where he showed most of the MJ-12 documents at the time. And those include a couple of other uh, documents. They include the so-called Kirtland documents and the Cutler Pointing memo and the Eisenhower briefing document and the Truman Forrestal memo, memo, et cetera. I got a plane flying overhead, so I'm going to have to wait before I can say anything. If you want to continue. The sequence occurred uh, basically from 1980 through about 1987. Now, one of the thing, one of the reasons why I'm so in, interested in the history of the MJ-12 controversy is that it, it didn't end then. Because in the 1980s, we we had uh, well in the late, uh, I'm sorry, in the late 80s and early 90s, we had the Bob Lazar claims coming out. Then uh, another document appeared mysteriously to a UFO researcher that's become known as the Psalm 1-01 manual, which is uh, an alleged manual covering uh, the recovery of uh, crashed UFOs and alien bodies. And then- I'm sorry, <clears throat> when, when did that come out? It came out in the early 90s. Okay. So around the time that, that Bob Lazar was talking to George Knapp in uh, getting ready to go public with his story. Yes. Okay. And uh, it it's it surfaced, you know, early to mid '90s. Then also during the '90s, a whole new slew of MJ12 related documents 
came out through a person by the name of Timothy Cooper. So the MJ, MJ-12 related documents kept coming out. And then in the 2000s, we had the, the Serpo story. We had the Serpo affair. And then as late as, and also during the 90s and 2000s, we had claims by this person that goes by Dan Burrish, uh, who claimed that he was, you know, uh, a scientist at Area 51 working with this alien by the name of J-Rod. Then uh, as late as 2017, a document surfaced that I refer to, I call it the ultra top secret document uh, that claims to be an MJ-12 related document. So what I'm trying to say, uh, Andrew, is that this affair is still going on basically up to the present day. And uh, as well, Richard Doty has given a number of uh, internet interviews in which he makes claims that are still very, very similar to the claims that were made in the 1988 UFO cover-up live program. You could even argue that as recently as today, this program could be uh, going on because of, are, are you familiar with uh, the um, Galactic Federation uh, controversy that's going on right now? The Israeli? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Professor out of I'm Israel. I'm not real familiar with it, but I, you know, I'm aware of it. Yeah, it's uh, apparently he's a, a high up or was a high up, high level officer in their space program. I think he was a general. Now he's a professor and he claims that Israeli government and the U.S. government has had contact and is cooperating with aliens and the reason that they don't want to make their presence known is because it'll send humanity into a panic um is that disinformation is it psyop is it a continuation of this uh mj12 scenario uh you know the 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 questions keep coming um one thing that i'm not familiar with i've heard it mentioned a few times uh to be honest with you i'm not really a document guy um i know that there are people are who are and they dig into those documents and i, I think it's fascinating to hear what they find but i don't have the um the attention span to, to sit there and read through scores of documents to find, uncover one little piece of information like some of these guys do uh, you're probably one of them too i'm assuming but that you have that analytical mind, right? Yeah. From being in, well, uh, I, being a math guy. Yeah, I, I have a financial background, but I've been accused of being analytical. <laughs> the Serpo documents, I've heard it mentioned. And could you just give me an overview of what that is about? The Serpo story came out on the internet. Uh, you can still go to it today and see the the uh, the episodes um, and and again they came anonymously as all of this stuff seems to come out um, and it's a series of postings on an internet site 
And the story goes basically like this. The US government uh, in the 50s had established communication uh, with the Roswell group, the Roswell group of aliens. And when the Roswell crash occurred, uh, several of the aliens were killed. So the arrangement was that the U.S. they would have an exchange program. The aliens would come in and pick up their dead and we would provide them with uh, U.S. citizens who would travel with them to their star, do a study and come back later, 10 years later. Now how this was done, allegedly done, was that uh, you had military people uh, that of course were vetted uh, to a T. Uh, they were uh, essentially untraceable. In other words, they were orphans. You know, there was no family that could be tied to them. Uh, their back, even whatever backgrounds they had were, were sheep dipped. Uh, and I had something like 12 people. Uh, there was a dispute whether there was a female or two females, but these people traveled in this spacecraft to this planet Serpo in this star system. It's a binary star system uh, known as Zeta Reticuli. And uh, they live there. Now, because of the, because of the space-time disparity between Earth and their, they, they were supposed to be there 10 years, but they came back, they got back like 14 years later or something like this. Now, I'm just recounting the story. I'm not saying this really happened, okay? But, uh, you know, they lived there. They lived amongst the aliens and their society. They got a look at the planet, you know, some of the flora and fauna there. Uh, one of the people, according to the story, died on the way uh, to the planet, had some kind of an embolism or something. And I think maybe one or one person died uh, living on the planet and a couple of them decided to stay, which is, seems extremely odd, but who knows. And uh, they came back and this, this whole program was in the deepest, darkest level of secrecy within the government. And that, that's basically how the story goes. And now there were all of these installments on, on this internet side but the story was recounted uh, in, in, in a book by uh, Leonard, Lynn Caston of you know, the, uh, the Serpo story, which you can get from Amazon as well. And that's basically how it goes. The, the legend is the, the source is someone in the DIA. Uh, Richard Doty has been accused of being involved in, in it. And I don't know. Uh, how much truth there is to that? He disputes it. Well, but, he was he was no longer in the military at that time, was he? No, but you know the old saying: once once you're in the intelligence community, community you never really leave. And Richard Doty has stated many times in his interviews on the internet that uh, after he uh, left the military, uh, he kept in touch with people. He's a member of the retired intelligence officers association, you know, one of these kind of things. And they get together once or twice a year and, you know, they share their 
stories, what they could share with each other. And fast, what's fascinating is that Richard Doty claims that they located the last living member of the Serpo team, who I, th I think it was in, I don't know when it was, but the guy was really up in years at the time. And I don't know if, if he, he claims that they actually met the person or they just found out who it was and where he lived. So uh, you're saying, did you say that Doty claims that they got in touch with this, this old timer who had been part of the Serpo team? Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, they, I, I they, had at least, they had at least found out who it was and located, located him. I, now, whether they actually talked to him or not, I'm not sure. And you said you think the story may have come out by way of a DIA uh, person, but do you know how it was distributed or, or how it came out? Was it just posted on the internet or was it delivered to somebody like, uh, like the MJ 12 documents were? Yeah, it was delivered through an intermediary. Now, I mean, who knows if it's a pure hoax and maybe the internet uh, intermediary was the hoaxer, you know, um, and your more conservative UFO types think that this, this whole Serpo thing is just a tall tale and it's, it's a pure hoax. Um, but it, it, Richard Doty claims that at least part of it is true. Now, DIA, another, another interesting thing that Doty has said is that, uh, in the late 60s, when the Air Force shut down Project Blue Book, in the late 60s, when the Air Force got out of Project Blue Book, Doty claims that they went shopping around for another agency to uh, receive the UFO information. And that agency was the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. And if Doty is, if what he's saying is true, that the UFO information that comes in from, you know, these Air Force bases and different places, different uh, government installations ends up in the DIA. And he's, he's made clear, and if a careful studying of UFO history indicates this as well, but Doty's made it clear that the military investi investigates UFO activity that affects military installations or military personnel or equipment. So the, uh, the AFOSI uh, does collect UFO uh, uh, reports on UFO or on Air Force bases. Now, presumably you would think that the other military branches would do the same, uh, such as the Naval Investigative Service and the Army. And we've had all of this controversy about the Navy lately and you kind of wonder if they, do they really investigate this or not? They, you would think they don't, according to Luis Elizondo. But, uh, you know, the, there's kind of this popular misconception that the military should be uh, investigating civilian sightings and all of this, and they don't. But they pay very close attention to anything that affects their facilities and personnel. Um, and the continuing with the timeline, um, as far as it being potentially ongoing, 
and continuing to this day with the the recent uh uncovering of the um the wilson davis documents be part of that do you think uh andrew i really think that's that's a horse of a different color there there is basically a chain of custody and a provenance on the admiral wilson document whereas there isn't on almost all of the other MJ-12 type documents. The Admiral Wilson document, I believe, was written up by Eric Davis and it was provided to Robert Bigelow uh, of you know, the Bigelow Aerospace and NIDS. Now, the question is who else got copies of it? Um, it's not inconceivable that the scientists on NIDS all got copies of it, one of those being uh, astronaut Edgar Mitchell. There's no way, well, I don't think they thought this through, but by distributing the memo to I don't know how many people, they didn't think about what if somebody dies and then what do you do with the material after that? Well, after Ed, Edgar Mitchell died, there's, there's a person that lives in Australia who uh, was a friend of the family and he was very interested in Edgar Mitchell's career, and he's very interested in the space program. Now, this person has not been identified because he doesn't want to be public. But what he did was he was able to recover some of Edgar Mitchell's files after he became deceased. Uh, apparently, the family didn't want to keep it, so they let him have it. Well, he allowed this, per this other Australian by the name of James Rigney to go through the files. Well, James Rigney is the one that recovered the Admiral Wilson document. And then uh, James Rigney eventually got it to Grant Cameron, a prominent UFO person. And then uh, Grant Cameron, I think, spread it around to a few people. And then it, it ended, ended up on the internet, on Reddit and, and so on and so forth. So there, there's basically a provenance and there's a chain of custody to that. Now, there aren't very many people that are claiming that it's not authentic. There, there are a few, but I'll tell you why I think it is authentic. And that is Eric Davis has never come out and said that it was phony. I mean, if you or I had a document come out in public with our name on it and it was phony, the first thing you do is go public and say, this, this is a fake. And he hasn't done that. Uh, he, he and Hal Putoff and others in that whole crowd have just uh, basically said nothing. They've, they've said they can't, they can't comment on it. So I think the Admiral Wilson document, I'm 95% sure that it's authentic. And now the circumstances surrounding the alleged interview between uh, Eric Davis and Admiral Wilson, yeah, that's, that's kind of another subject. Yeah, I agree. Tim uh, McMillan came out on uh, Spaced Out Radio the other night and made a really interesting point uh, about that and why he questions not the authenticity of the document, but the claims that are made within the document. And one of them is uh, supposedly Admiral Wilson was told that he, uh, you know, doesn't have access to this information and um, that there 
that they are working on alien recovered alien technology by a a civilian contractor i believe and who's to say that that civilian contractor wasn't a disinformation agent you know spreading a a, a false narrative and then um i i just think there's a lot of questions to the uh to the veracity of that document what's in it not so much you know where it came from who produced it and that kind of thing um but like i said i am not a document guy i think it's an interesting story to look at from the sidelines um the one thing i do not like is how divisive these topics can become you have one camp that uh refutes the possibility of anything out of that uh, document being accurate or true. And then you, on the other side, you have a group of people, well-respected, longtime researchers, investigators, who adamantly um, support the, the accuracy of the document and its claims. And it, it has a trickle-down effect to where if you go on social media and you read what people have to say about the, the two sides of the argument, it just turns into a free-for-all. I mean... Food fight. Yeah. UFO food fight. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's a, that's a kind way to put it. UFO food well, fight. But here's the thing. Um, if, if the interview actually occurred, between Eric Davis and Admiral Wilson. Admiral, like you said, Admiral Wilson himself would have had to have been deceived by whomever. Or he would have had, he would have been playing Eric Davis. And neither of those scenarios seemed likely to me. Now, I'm not saying definitively, you know, because I don't know. But I tend, like I said, I'm I'm 90, I'm 95% confident that. Uh, the document is is authentic, and that basically what occurred in in the document uh, did occur. Now you have to think about think about the fact that someone like Admiral Wilson spent his whole career getting up to I think a three star admiral level. Uh, that's a whole lifetime of work uh, to get to there. Now, if if he became interested in these uh, in the special access program. He's not going to come out and publicly claim that he did that. He, he's just not going to. So it's perfectly logical that he would deny it, at least in my mind. No, I agree with that. We may never have an answer to whether or not that is 100% definitive or not. And I'm okay with that because my area of interest is a little bit different. Um, the reason I'm intrigued by your area of study is that it, well, at least from the way that I, I kind of read the work and ran it through my own filters, it seems to me that there is an active disinformation campaign ongoing perpetrated by the government 
uh, and it may, whether you, you want to use the term psyop or disinformation um, to confuse and create division and strife amongst the community or to use it for the purposes of tracking information to see where it ends up. Um, you know, all of those seem like legitimate reasons. But if that is the case, does that lend credibility to the idea that they that the US government has access to recovered craft and possibly alien bodies? Uh, there's a book uh, by the name of X Descending, it's by Christian Lambright. And half of the book is about the Paul Benowitz affair. And I have it on an electronic version so I can do a word search. And I did a word search on counterintelligence. The word counterintelligence appears 19 or 20 times in the book. Okay. I also did that on, on uh, Greg Bishop's book, Project Beta. And yeah, it came up a number of times. I don't remember the exact number. There, there is a counterintelligence element to this, whatever it is. There, there apparently would be a, a counterintelligence aspect on, on a conventional level. You know, the leakage or tracking of leakage of classified information or classified information being passed on to agents, you know, so on and so forth. The question is, is there a counterintelligence aspect to deep, dark UFO information that the government has? If you look at Bill Moore's career and his claims, if you listen to Richard Doty and his claims, and if you listen to the claims of some other people, uh, there may be that aspect. There may be a counterintelligence effort to control the narrative about what the government really knows about UFOs. Now, if they create a cloud of deception and, con and confusion, then we as little old UFO people don't know what to believe really. And, but the persons that are in control, whoever they are, control the narrative. That is if you, if you allow that part of the whole idea of UFOs to, to, to be your source. So the, the angle that I'm coming from is, and I've been promoting the heck out of this because I believe in it, but it's a, it's really a grassroots effort by a company called Skyhub. Um, are you familiar with them? Okay. Yes. I know Bob McGuire. Okay. And, um, you know, whether you like Bob or not, uh, or agree with what he has to say or not, um, he's, uh, a, he's a strong proponent of the private sector going out there and finding answers for themselves. And he's been a, a strong backer of Skyhub, which will allow people to do just that. Um, now, it does require an investment of time and money to be able to collect this data. 
and then send that data into the central database. But I think that is for, for members of the UFO community who are sincerely looking for answers and want to get out of the mess of what we're talking about, the, the, the cloud of confusion. I'm, I'm a strong supporter of people going out there and finding answers for themselves by using these uh, sky hub technology, watching the skies, taking photos, um, investing in equipment that can allow you to collect data and then bringing that data to a central, uh, a central hub, such as the sky hub database. Um, and, and that's the angle that I'm coming from. Uh, there, there are other areas that, uh, that people have interest in, and that's the consciousness element of what these UFOs are, are doing, how they're interacting with humans. Uh, that's another interesting part of this, this whole subject. Um, what, what conclusions have you drawn from your area of study by researching these documents well, there, I've mentioned a lot of this before in this interview, but there, there are three basic ways to look at it. One is that there's some kind of counterintelligence effort to manipulate at least part of the public, but it's basically concerned with our own conventional high technology programs, classified programs, and uh, an effort to uh, maintain the security of that and engage in whatever counter-espionage activities need to be uh, pursued. The second theory is that it's a pure hoax. It's, it, they're personal hoaxes. There are hoaxers out there. Uh, Bill Moore and Rick Doty created the MJ-12 documents and they wanted to make a million dollars, this kind of a, uh, idea. Timothy Cooper forged all of his MJ-12 documents. Uh, Richard Doty had something to do with the creating the Serpo story and so, you know, and so on. The third theory is that Roswell did happen and they did recover at least one saucer and alien bodies and it's a deep dark secret. Now, which of those three are true? I think the first one, obviously the government, many of the government agencies, all of the government agencies that handle sensitive information have a counterintelligence department. So obviously that kind of effort goes on now, whether they're going after the UFO groups or not, I don't know, but that's, that's certainly believable. There are plenty of instances of hoaxes in UFO, modern UFO history. Uh, and people have made a very strong case that the MJ-12 documents in the eighties were a hoax, okay? And the third, the third possibility is uh, it depends on whether Roswell is real or not. Did they recover a real UFO and alien bodies? If they did, then almost certainly it would be a matter of extreme secrecy for, for a number of different reasons. So it seems to me that all three scenarios could have elements of the truth involved in them. If Roswell was 
and and I'll, I'll say this for the record. I believe Roswell was an alien craft, and I believe it was recovered by the military. That's my personal opinion, and I'm not trying to convince anybody to believe that. That's just how I feel, and that's the, the angle that I come from. I've got my reasons, and I won't get into that, but um, – so we, you know, if that is real and the government wants to keep it a secret, well, then they are compelled to uh, sow disinformation amongst researchers and investigators, people interested in this topic. So that goes to the counterintelligence uh, aspect of it. And whether or not people are perpetrating hoaxes, um, you know, people will do strange things for money and fame. And every day it's, it is, it is entirely possible that people who have had access to information at one point in time, decided to exploit that opportunity and do something nefarious with it, but not in a way that's intended to hurt people, but in a way that they can promote themselves and make themselves rich. I don't see anybody of, of these people that we mentioned, I don't think that they're like sitting on piles of gold because of their exploitation of this topic. So whether it backfired, uh, you know, or just, you know, or, or it, it really wasn't a hoax. They were, had a hoax perpetrated against them, which is more likely the case. Uh, yeah. I think all three scenarios could have elements of, of truth to them and, Again, I don't know if we'll ever have answers to these things, but I, people like you that have the discipline and the focus to go in and dig out these minute little facts uh, only brings us inches closer to that ultimate, you know, to the to the growing body of knowledge that we have about this topic. And it's a, it's an invaluable service that you do. And I appreciate what you do. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's uh, it's it's a little bit of a specialty, but it is my passion. I love what I'm doing. I can completely relate to that coming from a different angle, you know, looking at the, the topic from a different perspective. Uh, because I've, I've always wanted to be the, that guy that has a driving force, you know, something that is not coming from within, but something that is like, compelling me to be to to motivate me to do something um you know the work that i've done over the years has been interesting and somewhat fulfilling but it i i would never say that it's been a driving passion of mine um and when i see people that have that that just inexplicable drive to do something it's uh, to me, it's like, you know, f keep feeding that, that fire. But at the same time, man, don't forget about Paul Benowitz and what happened to him. Um, because that is such a tragedy. You know, he was such a brilliant mind and to have been deceived the way he was. Uh, uh, I, 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 you know, I don't think that you're going down that path by any means. That's not what I'm trying to say. I just, I'm saying for anybody who finds themselves enwrapped in, in, in this topic, there are people out there who 
will feed you disinformation intentionally and do not have your best interest in mind. They have their own agenda and you really have to be careful of who you listen to uh, when you're talking about this topic. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the foreign governments do it to each other. All That's the time. true. That is they absolutely feed, they true. Feed each other phony information, phony documents. Uh, they, they locate an agent and uh, they get them on the line. They turn them and they start feeding <laughs> all of this phony information back to the other side. And it's, it, it was a shock to the UFO community when Bill Moore gave his speech in 1989 at the MUFON Symposium, uh, admitting that he had cooperated with AFOSI, uh, that he had been at least part of the Benowitz affair, affair. He had seen what had happened, you know, what had become of Paul Benowitz. Before that, in the 50s and 60s, uh, for example, with Donald Kehoe, Donald Kehoe was very suspicious that the Air Force was concealing information, that they weren't being forthcoming. Um, and uh, that there was this mindset in the UFO groups, NICAP and APRO and MUFON, that the government was covering up what they knew about UFOs. But it wasn't until the 1980s that they began to realize that there may have been direct involvement and intervention by the government and the UFO community. Now, the extent of that, we don't really know for sure. But after the 80s, the UFO community has never been the same. There's this common uh, belief that the UFO community is infiltrated and that it's manipulated. Um, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of where to go with that because I, I don't, you know, first of all, let me say this, uh, when you say infiltrated and manipulated, it brings to mind, um, some of the accusations leveled against the people at TTSA, uh, because there, there is a strong belief by members of the community that, the TTSA is pushing a narrative and the, the narrative is the, th the threat that the UFOs pose a threat to the, the U S government or the military uh, or all of the above. I am not a subscriber to that particular line of thinking, Be, uh, but uh, even if it was true, what TTSA has done for the topic of disclosure is somewhat unprecedented. It has pushed the disclosure, uh, the disclosure process to a new level that we haven't seen. I, I don't know if we've ever seen it come this close to the, the military, the DOD coming out and saying that there are things flying around that we don't know what they are in public. What's new to me is that we've had a couple of people within the system 
that have left the system and have found a way uh, to break open some of the some of the communication channels. Now, I agree with you, Andrew. I'm not. I don't subscribe to this idea that TTSA is a psyop or that they're trying to control the narrative and all this. I think that that Chris Mellon and Luis Elizondo. I think their hearts are in the right place, and I think they have good intentions. I do think that they are basically focused on getting the military to pay more attention to the problem. I think I, my personal opinion is that they're more interested in that than they are in the public uh, civilian side of it. But Chris Mellon doing what he's done, he's been a congressional aide and he's worked in the Department of Defense. He understands the levers of power. He, he understands how to navigate within the system. And Luis Elizondo has had direct, uh, direct uh, experience with uh, UFO, UAP events uh, with the Navy and possibly other branches. So these two, like you said, they've done, they, they've done us all a service in that they have, they, they cracked that egg a little bit. There's a crack there and, and some, some things are changing. And I, Honestly, I think they checkmated them. I think they checkmated DOD because uh, people like um, John Greenwald, the black vault guy, would start filing FOIA requests and we get all this con conflicting information from DOD. I don't think that the Department of Defense really has a strategy, a set of strategies and tactics on how to control this. And I, I think they're behind the eight ball. They're behind the curve at this point. When you, when, if you look at what they've been saying and the retraction after retraction after retraction, um, you know, they'll say, they'll say one thing and then retract that or say something completely different. It's, it almost seems like, I mean, what you're saying is completely true because is it the the left hand not talking to the right hand? Is it one person making the decisions that's beyond their capacity to make those decisions? Um, is it the higher ups, you know, saying it, this is an opportunity for us to um, to muddy the waters and and add more confusion to the to the to the community by, you know, saying different things, uh, you know, and if you continue to look at that area, well, I, I think it's important that people, members of the U United States, uh, people, citizens of the United States continue to put pressure on Congress and ask them for answers because that allows Congress to put pressure on the military to get those answers. Uh, so what the TTSA is doing by bringing, elevating the level of awareness and making it acceptable for the media to talk about it and for um, legitimizing the uh, UFO researchers and investigators that have been working on this topic for decades, uh, 
that increases the level of awareness amongst the the general population. And if there's enough curiosity amongst the general population, then they're going to want answers. The only way to get those answers is for them to write their congressmen and put pressure on those on those legislators to then put pressure on the military to get those answers. That's that's one avenue. And I completely support that. And I think that's that may be um, a side a side benefit to what TTSA is doing. Um, but I, I I think you're right that they're more focused on um, the the military aspect of it, the the potential threat to the military. Um, that's what TTSA. Although I've heard some things by Lou Elizondo um, that said that, you know, he said, and I can't quote him. I don't know where I heard him say this, but uh, the, the threat narrative is a way for, to increase the, the, the military's interest in this topic. By doing that, it elevates the awareness of everybody. And I think that's, you know, I think that's what their ultimate goal is, is to, to get more people involved in this conversation. Yeah, and it's always been true that there have been uh, factions in the military and in the Department of Defense. That it was true in the 40s, it was true in the 50s, it's true today. Louis Elizondo has pointed this out that there's there's a faction of evangelical conservative Christian types who want to think that UFOs are demons or demonic and that we shouldn't have anything to do with it. But beyond that, there's there's the simple division, demarcation between uh, military brass that would like to investigate this more deeply and those that don't. And uh, for the military and for much of the government, I mean, the, for the military, their job is to protect the United States. And they have a million priorities to do that. UFOs are way, 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 way down on the list. I mean, we UFO people like me we think about this stuff all the time. We think the whole world's worried about UFOs. They, they are not. The, the military people in the Department of Defense are, are concerned about doing their job, which is protecting the United States. Now, in the case of the Navy, you have people on ships, on aircraft carriers, maybe a huge UFO comes out of the water and takes off, you know, or you have uh, F-18 pilots flying uh, training missions and UFOs are flying circles around them, and they're they're wondering what's going on. Now, the Navy, when they run an exercise, that that is uh, uh, that's re that's a restricted area. You know, you don't go through there in your speedboat. But the UFOs don't know that. I mean, assuming that they're not human, earthly ever, earthly human origin. They don't know that. They don't care. <laughs> so the military is viewing it as a threat, and that is the logical way to 
to look at it. And Luis Elizondo has said that, you know, it should be studied as a threat until you're, until it's proven that it's not a threat. Now the Air Force has taken the opposite point of view, at least publicly from the 60s. That uh, US government does not believe that UFOs are a threat to the security of the United States, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's the opposite point of view. And it's kind of interesting that, that Elizondo and them are, are uh, framing this as a threat, but I can understand why. Uh, I totally agree. Um, this document you sent me uh, is, is so detailed. Okay, so you're in the process right now of compiling this, this uh, study that you've been doing on this um, topic of the MJ-12 affair. Uh, and uh, you, you plan on publishing this in the form of a book at some point, is that true? I hope to someday. Um, the way I'm going about this is uh, I'm going to be writing papers and each paper will roughly equate to a chapter. There are a number of, of different uh, topics that can be broached in this whole domain of, of the MJ-12, uh, the history of the MJ-12 controversy is the way I like to uh, I like to, to phrase it. Um, you know, there's psychological warfare aspect to it. There's the, the aviary, the so-called aviary. Uh, I I'm going to be writing a paper about some things that occurred before the MJ-12 controversy that are kind of intriguing, that are, that are uh, maybe not directly related to MJ-12, but, but are but are interesting. Um, there's there's the uh, element of, of hoaxes. Uh, I'm going to take a look at hoaxes in UFO uh, modern UFO history, especially documentary hoaxes. Um, there's there are just a lot of different uh, topics that can be broached. Now there are the documents themselves, the forensic uh, aspects of the documents, and I haven't gotten into that deeply yet, but there will be a time when I'm going to get much more involved on the forensic side of the documents themselves. Now, the particularly the Eisenhower briefing document, the Cutler-Twining memo, and the Truman-Forrestal memo have all been commented on extensively concerning their, you know, their strengths and weaknesses, mostly weaknesses. When you say commented on, does that mean that you've written about those? That other people have. Oh, okay. Other people have have uh, examined them and criticized them and commented on on the uh, aspects of that. So there, like I said, there there are many topics that I can uh, that I can write about. I I'd, I'd like to have. Uh, at least 20, uh, upwards 20, 25. So I'm, I'm going to be working on this for a while. Now, the one I've been currently working on, I, I originally started out creating a timeline of the Benowitz affair, and it, it's expanded a little bit into more of a timeline of the, the whole 80s era. But 
I've been dig digging really deeply into that. And I've spent, well, I, I published my last paper on, on September 10. And I've been working on this probably since around October 1st. And so I, I, I'm into my third month and I, I'm getting to the point now where I'm writing, I'm starting to write it. Um, but I won't publish it until probably at least March because Richard Doty is coming out with his book. And that will be interesting. Oh, Richard Doty's coming out with his own book now. Yeah. He's been threatening that for a long time, but I think he's finally going to do it. Now, he, he claims that he wrote a 400-page book and that the government censored 300 pages of it. <laughs> it's... Uh... I, you know, I, I don't know Richard Doty. Uh, I I know, you know, only from hearing what he said, it gives me um, a feeling of it's almost it's almost impossible for me to believe that anything he says is true after what he's admitted to. I'm, I'm still coming to grips with that. I, I'm still trying to find, you know, a man seeking redemption and trying to, to actually bring the truth forward after having remorse for what he did. Uh, I'm just having a tough time coming to grips with that. Well, I'm not here to defend Richard Doty necessarily, but I will say this, like I, like I just said, Andrew, I, I've really dug into this Benowitz timeline and I've gone through a number of different secondary sources, books and reports and papers. And my finding is that uh, Paul Benowitz was well on his way to going off the deep end about these aliens by the time that Richard Doty ever got involved. Excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, that's a, that's a fair statement. Um, your, uh, if anybody wants to find out more about your work and read the, the articles that you've written so far, uh, I, I want to give you an opportunity to give your website address. And I think since we've mentioned it a few times, let's go ahead and, and mention it now. And then um, we'll say it again at the end of the discussion as well. My blog is titled tomwhitmoreblog.wordpress.com. That's tomwhitmoreblog dot wordpress.com I am on Twitter uh, as at Tom Tulsa and I'm on Facebook as Tom Whitmore so I can be tracked any number of ways but I started my blog a little over a year ago and uh, that's where I'd suggest anyone go if you want to get an idea of what I'm up to tomwhitmoreblog.wordpress.com Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at a little bit of your um, website right now. And I went through it briefly since we first talked, but there is quite a bit of 
information in, in here. Um, yeah, um, I was writing on kind of different things about UFOs, but I want to just focus on MJ-12. And it, it, I spent all summer uh, writing this paper on the counterintelligence angle, most of which was written at Big Bend National Park in Texas. But it's taking me, you know, another two, three months to write another paper. So rather than just post something every three months, I'm, I'm going to start giving a weekly update just on things I've been doing that week and things to do with uh, subjects that have come up in the UFO world and just to keep posting things in the blog so that there's something to look at. Um, and then when I do have my paper ready, then I'll post them the next one. By the way, the paper that I did post, uh, the uh, MJ-12, the counterintelligence angle, is also on YouTube, and there's an audio version of it. Oh, okay, so cool. If you uh, if you put in search box MJ-12, Thomas Whitmore, or something like that, or MJ-12, the counterintelligence angle, Whitmore, uh, you'll you'll be able to pull it up. You can listen to it when you're driving to the grocery store. That's the um, the best way for me to consume information is either by audiobook, podcast, um, because I just personally I don't have the uh, you know. I'm, but here's here's the books I'm reading right now. But this is the one that I just picked up. And I'm reading oh. now, and uh, I'm on about page ten. <laughs> yeah, I was just a slow, very, very slow reader, and um, I went out to Area Fifty One a couple nights ago. First time I live in Las Vegas, and went out to Area Fifty One the first time. Didn't see anything. Uh, unusual or unexplainable, but I did see something spectacular. And, you know, whether UFOs are aliens from other planets or, you know, beings from other dimensions, ultra terrestrials that have been here on earth for, for millennia, um, whatever they are, people have to remember how magnificent and how, mysterious the world that we live in actually is the ufo mystery and subject is something to look into but you don't have to live every day of your life searching for answers in that in that area because the world that we live in is so incredible and this is what we this is where we're at right now you got to remember to enjoy and take advantage of this opportunity that we have right here and right now. I think that's where a lot of people kind of lose focus and end up, you know, getting so caught up in finding the answers. And that's great. I think that's, that's incredible because it, it pushes the, the subject and it, it, it pushes the conversation and it makes it more interesting to talk about. But the world uh, is a fascinating place. It is. Sure. It is absolutely. Uh, but to go out and in nature 
and experience what you find out there. Yeah. I just, I can't describe it. I mean, we saw Starlink flying overhead for the first time. And I mean, that was an unexpected like bonus from being out there. Uh, I went out there with the expectation of possibly doing some landscape photography, um, visiting the small town of Rachel, which is a cool little town. There's probably 50 people that live in that town, I guess. Um, had a really, really good dinner. Uh, the food there was really good. And then we did some adventure and went out to the black mailbox and sat out there and froze froze outside trying to take some pictures but you know it's the experience of we we were looking for something strange and unexplained but we were we were not so caught up in that that we didn't enjoy the experience of being there and and appreciating the world that we live in that's this is me and my wife and that's what uh, I think people have to remember. Yeah. Well, being way out there at night would be spectacular. I'm sure he had a great view of the sky. Oh yeah, it was incredible. It was incredible. I wish I was better at night photography because you could literally see the Milky Way. Uh, you know how you see that long strip of stars that it yeah. it just looks like a you know I don't know how to describe it, but um, you can tell just from looking out up at the sky that the, uh, the Milky Way is a, this disc shape, um, formation because you see the, the, like the, the, the stars get more dense as you, you know, there's this one, like a line of stars. I mean, you know what I mean? If you've ever looked up at the night sky with, without light pollution, you you know what I'm talking about. Sure. Well, I'm glad uh, you have that experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I would encourage anybody that's interested in the topic of UFOs to go out there and do some sky watching for yourself. Because if you don't, you know, if if you're compelled, like, oh, I, for, I forgot to ask you, what actually compelled you to, because you've been a member of MUFON for uh, 20 plus years as well. What what is it that compelled you to dive deep into this uh, this subject? Did you ever have an experience of your own? I didn't. I, like I said, I was I was uh, stimulated by the subject in in my uh, young adult years. Um, I was walking down the street in San Antonio, and I walked past a a magazine stand and I saw a UFO magazine there and I read it and the rest is history. I started reading UFO books. The more I read, the more interesting it became. And then uh, I realized that uh, there was this organization called MUFON that was being run out of Seguin, Texas at the time I was living in San Antonio and they would have meetings in San Antonio and the, the uh, director of, of MUFON, Walt Andrus, would attend the meetings. And I was able to get to know him that way. And I became a, a field investigator, state section director. And then Walt asked, Andrus invited me on the board 
of MUFON, and I've been on the board ever since. So I've been in it for the long haul. The, the UFO field, uh, I've said this, people probably get tired of me saying it, but the UFO field is a very difficult field. There are no ready answers. It's very difficult to do science. I'm not saying you can't do any science, but you don't know when a UFO is going to show up. You don't know where. You don't know under what circumstances. Usually, if one does, by the time you get into a position to take a picture or something, it's it's gone. So, uh, and then you know, we've talked about some of the social effects and even governmental effects of, of this problem uh, that that obscure the issue. Uh, even people like you take someone like Jacques Vallée, who's probably the greatest living person in ufology today. He's, he's been in this since the early 60s. He started creating a computerized database of sightings and reports way back in the 60s. And he's carried it forward in one form or another up to the present day. And he's, he's a computer scientist. He, he started using computers way before most people ever did. And he has a PhD in computer science. And Jacques Vallée doesn't have any answers to this problem. If you ask him uh, for his theories, they're fairly vague. I don't mean to disparage his viewpoint, but nobody has an answer to this problem. And with all of the effort that's been put into it uh, during modern UFO history, unless the government has you know, recovered UFOs and aliens and all that. Uh, you know, we, we have a we have a really tough problem to try to get an answer to. And we shouldn't blame ourselves. And we shouldn't blame each other for not having answers. Okay? Can you say that again? We shouldn't blame ourselves and we shouldn't blame others for not having answers to this. Absolutely. 100% agree with you on that. Uh, I, I would like to ask you a little bit about your field investigative uh, experiences um, when you first went into MUFON. Would you like to talk about that a little bit, or did you want to stick to the, the documents? I didn't do a huge number of field investigations. Um, we did have, back in those days, there was no internet. Uh, I did have... Uh, a little answering machine and, and, and I got a few reports that way. And I got a couple of reports that were referred to me by Walt Andrus. The reports that I followed up on, I found they were, they were human error or human imagination. Uh, one, one example is uh, some teenage boys insisted they were seeing UFOs what they were seeing were spotlights from San Antonio reflecting off clouds. Um, uh, Walter Andrus called me up one day and he asked me to investigate a possible crop circle. I went out there and found that somebody had taken a lawnmower and cut a circle on the grass. I did get uh, one or two interesting uh, interviews. I, I met a gentleman that claimed that he had, I don't know if he had you would characterize it as an abduction or as a or as a contact, but he was in the furniture uh, furniture manufacturing business. He he was not uh, scientifically or 
or educated in an engineering way. But he claimed that these aliens showed him how to create this drill bit that was really, that he claimed was revolutionary in furniture manufacturing. And that they, they helped him, they imparted this knowledge, you know, you get into this consciousness thing, you know, they imparted this knowledge to him that he was able to write up the, uh, the patent and design this, this bit. And he showed it to me. Um, I, I met with him and I thought that was, that was an interesting case. Now, is it psychological? You know, who knows? Like, I, I can't meet the aliens and ask them, you know, what, what they told him. Um, then I had another instance where uh, I met this lady that was really very mean and very cold and claimed to have met five living presidents and claimed that the alien autopsy uh, film was real. And uh, then the next time I tried to contact her, she had disappeared. And, you know, you get into this business of uh, someone trying to disinform you or something. Of course, we learned later, and it's been thoroughly documented that the alien autopsy film was a hoax. So, you know, things like that. It's, I encourage anyone, whether you love or hate MUFON, if you want to be a field investigator, you can go the MUFON route. We have an excellent field investigator manual. And uh, we have groups, we have state sections, state directors, and so on and so forth that can help. And there are books on field investigation if you just want to be investigate UFOs and and uh, build your own case file. It's 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 a it's a fascinating way to spend your time, and you, you have some really interesting experiences doing it. Yeah, that is one of the. Um unique aspects of the UFO, uh, the subject of UFO study is that you can do it on your own as an individual and just go talk to people. Uh, when you get into collecting forensic evidence and stuff, uh, there's certain means and methods that you have to, to practice in order for that evidence to be considered true evidence. Um, <clears throat> and without without uh, training, then it could be, it could be something that's questionable. But if, if you have a curiosity and you want to go talk to people that have had uh, eyewitness accounts, I mean, that's what I'm doing with my podcast. You know, I'm talking to eyewitnesses. I'm talking to people who have been abducted, I'm talking to people who investigate it. I'm talking to skeptics. I'm talking to just about anybody that has any interest in the topic of ufos because i have a curiosity and and if i can answer any of the questions that i have then it's it's worth doing it for me and um you know i, I think it's kind of cool that other people like to hear the conversations that i i've been able to have with some of the some of the people in the area of study and the different areas that they're interested in. Like you said, man, there's so many areas that you can get involved in this, in this topic. Um, oh, which actually brought me back to your, your uh, documents. And it was, it was prompted by the, uh, the notes that you'd sent me. 
did it have something to do with the aviary? Uh, no, but we can talk about that if if that's an area that is in, is uh, is important because uh, I'm not that familiar with the aviary. Um, but it it had something to do with uh, oh the alien autopsy. So the oh, okay. the uh, alien autopsy. Do you think that that was part of this possible MJ twelve program? Uh, or push of disinformation? Well, we wondered about that at first, but uh, there's there's a book by Philip Mantle. He's a, a British researcher. If you look him up and approach him, he'll send you a copy of his book electronically. But he uh, did extensive work and checking into this alien autopsy film that was produced by Ray Santilli. And he, he's pretty much thoroughly proved that it's a hoax. Now, what's interesting is that uh, in addition to the Admiral Wilson document, when that came out, a copy of an email uh, came along with that. And I believe it was an email from Hal Putoff to Kit Green, or it was a, uh, it was several emails. And Hal Putoff, or there was a, the conversation went something like this. Did the film that you see, was that the same as the alien, or the pictures that you saw, was that, was that the same as the alien autopsy film? And from this chain of communication, it, it seemed to suggest that Kit Green thought that it was what he had seen was the same thing that was on the alien autopsy film. Now here's what gets interesting. Kit Green was a CIA scientist and he ran the so-called weird desk. During his time there, he uh, and, and he's told much of this to Richard Dolan that he had opportunities to see photographs of aliens or he, he claims that he was told that they were going to show him a film of an alien autopsy. So he goes into the secure room and they just show him pictures and he says, what happened to the film? And they say, well, we, we decided not to show you that. And then he has also said that people had been dropping things off on his front porch anonymously, CDs and films and documents and that he think, he has said that he thinks that most of them are phony. So here is a CIA scientist that's being disinformed. And you get into this wilderness of wilderness of mirrors scenario the cover story covering the lie that covers the the uh, uh myth that covers the other cover story i mean where does it's like the russian doll you know where you open it up and there's another doll inside and so and it goes on and on it's it's uh to me that that's fascinating that's what turns me on that's cool but but at the same time, it leaves us all in a position of we don't know what to believe. You're, you're 
you're chasing answers and every answer spawns a hundred more questions. So it's a never ending spiral. Uh, I think that's interesting what you said about Kit Green. Now, I'm not that familiar with Kit Green. I, you know, full disclosure, uh, I've said this before. Most of the people who listen to this know this already. I have not been involved in this topic for that long. Um, I, my, um, I, I changed my mind about not believing after reading the book Hunt for the Skinwalker. And that was in probably 2015. So up until 2015, I was not a believer. Uh, after I read that book, I changed my mind and I, I started to believe that this stuff, there's really something to it. And then in 2017, that just blew the doors off and it was okay for me to talk about it now. Um, so I did start talking to people. But until this year, uh, when COVID hit and decimated my, my business, uh, you know, I, I, that is what prompted me to start a podcast and start actually digging in and talking to people, talking to firsthand witnesses. It's, it's so interesting to talk to people who, who witness these unexplainable events and people who've had these abduction experiences uh it, it just uh that's that's what drives me you know is hearing because i've never had the experience for myself i've never witnessed any kind of strange lights or unusual craft those you know that how amazing would it be did you see grant cameron's um and nicole sackage do the uh the um triangle the black triangle uh, panel on YouTube a couple nights ago. Yeah, uh, that was cool. I've, I've been on Nicole Sackage panel too. So yeah, yeah. She, she and I are buddies. That's. Uh, I, I thought that panel was so interesting, and hearing those firsthand accounts of people, you know, witnessing those craft and like just what are those things? You know, I mean, I in in in. And the day, you know, in the, the period that we live in, I think it is possible that the government has craft that do certain things. Uh, but I don't think that that explains all of these sightings. And if you go back 20 years, I don't think that the technology existed that these people were witnessing back then. And if you go back to the 1940s, I'm almost 100% sure that that technology didn't exist back then. So there, there is absolutely some truth to, you know, the, the idea that UFOs are unexplained craft and what's in them, what's controlling them, that's a mystery, you know. Uh, but uh, so the, uh, the, the, the aviary group or the, the area of study that you've been working on that talks about the aviary. Uh, can you just give me an overview of that? Because I don't have a clue what that aviary thing is. In the 1980s, when Bill Moore was investigating, uh, trying to get to the bottom of what he 
believed the U.S. government knew about UFOs, he developed several contacts in in mainly in, with a military with military backgrounds, maybe a couple from intelligence. And when he was talking to them or about them on the phone, he would use bird names. So you had bird names like pelican and dove and falcon and condor. And because of that, they became known as the aviary. And uh, there were some people, interesting people in the aviary group. One of them was this person by the name of Ernie Kellerstrauss. He was an Air Force person and he had seen and heard certain things that were very interesting. Uh, John Alexander, I don't know if you've heard of him. He was uh, one of the, uh, apparently one of Bill Moore's contacts. Richard Doty was known as Sparrow. Uh, there were others. And the most famous and most mysterious was what Bill was who Bill Moore referred to as Falcon. And in the 80s and the early 90s, the conservative skeptical types were quite convinced that Falcon was Richard Doty. But uh, Moore always insisted that Richard Doty was not Falcon, but nobody knew who Falcon was. Well, uh, this person by the name of Greg Bishop, who has written a book called Project Beta, which is about all this. Uh, Greg Bishop was friends with Bill Moore and Bill Moore, uh, Greg Bishop says that Bill Moore told him, uh, I think around the year 2002, that Falcon was this person by the name of Harry Rositsky. Well, this gets into the counterintelligence idea because Harry Rositsky was a retired CIA Russian specialist. And he was like your classic CIA type. He ran agents, you know, in Eastern Europe and in other countries. And he, Harry Rositsky was the real deal. So was Harry Rositsky uh, one of Bill Moore's controls, so to speak? I can't say for 100% sure because we're just taking Bill Moore's word for it. There's no documentation or any, any way to verify it. And Bill Moore didn't disclose this to Greg Bishop until after Harry Rositsky uh, passed away. Now, Bill Moore did state on a radio interview in the 90s that he would reveal Falcon's name at the proper time. And it's certainly, uh, it's common sense that the proper time would be after the person became deceased. So that's kind of an overview of the aviary. The aviary people that I know of that have been listed on the internet and that people commonly believe to be aviary members all were government people, military people that, that were fairly high up in the hierarchy, but they didn't, they didn't necessarily have the inside, inside information. They knew something, they'd heard something, they knew a little something about things. They had intriguing information, but 
and another prominent aviary person is, is Hal Putoff. Um, so now another element of this is there are probably at least one, maybe two or three other aviary members that we don't know about. And they could possibly even be as high as Henry Kissinger or maybe uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, somebody on that level. We don't know, but more, more claims that, you know, he got awfully high up into, into the hierarchy in, in this investigation that he, that he conducted, but we don't, we have no way of verifying that. One of the things that I find interesting <clears throat> is that these names that you mentioned keep showing up decade after decade in, uh, you know, in different circles, but all having to do with strange and unusual ideas. So how put off was involved in the Stargate program back in the eighties. Yeah. Uh, Kit Green, a member of NIDS during the um, the Bob Big Bigelow days at Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, I, I don't know if how Putoff was involved in that as well, but, um, you know, and then uh, Eric Davis, I think, was also part of that group, wasn't he, of Skinwalker Ranch? I think so, yes. And then they, they all those guys show up in TTSA. Um, how, what's that about? I mean, how do those guys manage to uh, interject themselves? I, I don't know if that's the right word, but how do they manage to find themselves at the center of these groups going back decades? Very that's, good question. Yeah. And a very good observation, uh, Andrew. I One of my personal tasks is to read all of Jacques Vallée's memoirs. He has, he has four, he has uh, several volumes going back to the 60s. One of the things that I've noticed is if, if I could term a core aviary, it would be Jacques Vallée, Kit Green, and Hal Putoff. Those three go back to the 70s and they've migrated up through to the present day. Now, the aviary in the 80s migrated into the Bigelow phase into the 90s. And there was also a phase with Joe Firmage, who at the time in the late 90s, early 2000s was, he was a, a software tycoon come into a lot of money. And I, know, I, I believe that uh, Al Putoff was involved with that too, um, you know, with Joe Firmage. But then they migrated into Bigelow's organization in NIDS and in BAS. And then this latest iteration is TTSA. Now, I'm not saying they all migrated, but there is this element of migration from virtually from the 70s up to the present day. And it, it is an interesting question. Now, what I don't know, and maybe maybe Tom DeLong has talked about this, but I don't know how Tom DeLong, I don't know how Tom DeLong 
got connected with Luis Elizondo and Chris Millen. I don't know how he got connected with Hal Putoff and you know Eric Davis and them. Those are questions I think that are reasonable questions to ask. And I, I don't know if we have answers. I'm not saying they're necessarily big mysteries. I don't know the answers to that. Good, uh, more good questions. One thing that I do know, and this was uh, stated by uh, Dr. Greer himself, is that Tom DeLong, when, when Tom DeLong first got interested in the topic, Stephen Greer was, uh, I can't remember if Tom DeLong approached Stephen Greer or if Greer reached out to Tom DeLong. I, I think it was that Tom DeLong said he was interested and then he and Stephen Greer got together. So Tom DeLong was kind of a, uh, oh man, I don't want to use the word disciple, but that's kind of what I'm getting at. You know, he was a, uh, not an intern, but just, you know, he was a, he was a person that got connected with Stephen Greer, made a bunch of contacts through Stephen Greer, who's been connected with, uh, you know, deep circles within the government for a long time because of, uh, because of his own interest in, in this topic. So I think Tom DeLong took the, the connections that he made working with Stephen Greer and just went off on his own and, and did it that way, did his own thing that way. Pure speculation on that my part, sense. but I think that's where it started. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, so many, so many questions, so many areas that are fascinating to look into on, on these, on this topic. Um, have you have you come to any conclusions regarding the aviary? Is is it uh, so? Okay, being a person who's been mostly an outsider on this topic, on on the entire UFO topic, an outsider being that I I never really did a lot of research in it, never been a witness to anything. Um but I've seen what other people are saying and I've seen people throw out terms like the blue chickens. Uh, is that re reference to the aviary and just mocking that, that whole idea that it's a, it's a fake program. No, that, that comes from the, uh, from the uh, secret Secret space program claims. Oh, oh okay. Of Corey Good. Of okay. Corey Good. And these stories that Corey Good has been telling uh, he, uh, about a meeting of, like in an auditorium of all of these intergalactic interests, and some of them are the blue chicken. Well, they, people re refer to it in a joking way as the blue chickens, but they, there are these chicken like humanoids that have like a blue collar or something you know so that's where the blue chicken thing comes uh, okay i see yeah just see come i mean if if you're a casual observer of what goes on in the ufo community at best it's confusing because there is no there there's no cohesion among the 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 different 
groups within the community itself. And I wish if they, if, if there was one thing that I would hope that people would take away from the, the conversations that I have with people like yourself and, and other areas of the topic is that there needs to be some cohesive, uh, you know, you don't have to agree on everything, but this um, disparaging and making fun of people, uh, that doesn't help. Uh, do, you, do you get what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And for a long time, I've characterized the UFO community as like a political party in exile, uh, which political parties in exile are notorious for backstabbing and, you know, all that. Um, and our, our basic problem is there's nothing definite that we can hang our hats on. I mean, really, truly rock solid definite. We know that something's going on. That, that's, that's apparent. And we know that enough is going on that it, it can't be ignored. It can't be just brushed off. But beyond that, we don't have anything really, truly solid. So uh, when you don't have anything solid, then anything can be true. Uh, and that's what you get in the UFO field. Now, I'm not complaining about it because I'm kind of an old hand at this in a way, and none, none of this surprises me. The rock-ribbed, conservative, scientific UFO types, their complaints and their, uh, their attitudes don't surprise me in the least, and you go to the opposite end of these really far, far out stories like Corey Good tells, you know, that doesn't surprise me either. And the UFO community since the forties has, has rolled over in several respects. In the fifties, you had the, the contactees and they were telling all kinds of crazy and absurd stories of the Nusian apples and the Nusian music and all of this. Um, and now we have you know, we had crazy stories in the 80s of underground bases and evil aliens eating people and, and that. And, and then we have the secret space program. And, and you can find just about anything you want in the UFO field in terms of, of, uh, uh, of beliefs. And some people uh, view the UFO, the whole social manifestation of the UFO problem is as a religious, uh, in a religious dimension. And there are a lot of parallels in UFOs, in UFO, be, in UFO people behavior. There are a lot of parallels with religion, but that's true in a lot of things, uh, politics, entertainment, sports, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, role models, heroes in society. Uh, people admiring that or getting caught up in it, they can take on uh, pseudo-religious dimensions. So, you know, it's, it is a crazy world out there, but I think that I, some people insist that the UFO problem should be studied scientifically, but I advocate that it should be studied rationally. Okay, that we use logic and critical thinking 
trying to have a little bit of maturity, keep trying to learn more, don't have excessively high expectations, either of the findings or of even of the behavior of the people in the field. Uh, if you set your expectations too high, uh, you're just gonna be frustrated and, and, uh, and, and disappointed. Uh, I'm not saying that we should have low standards, we should have high standards and we should work diligently and conscientiously, but don't expect to get answers tomorrow. It ain't gonna happen unless maybe the government does have the goods, but the only way, you know, people talk about disclosure, but there's only one form of disclosure that's going to do us any good, and that's if they put the saucers and the bodies on the National Mall and they let the masses file past. Okay. Uh, otherwise, we don't we don't have answers. Yeah, I agree. I think that would um, what it boils down to, as far as the UFO community being more cohesive and and more cooperative with one another is what people need to also adopt as a personality trait is a little bit more empathy towards each other because you can you can be logical pragmatic critical but if if you don't have empathy towards other people minimize the value of that person and that's where it gets into the backbiting and the, the stone throwing and insults being lobbed at other people. And that's, that's where it all starts to break down. And I'm not surprised that, you know, the, uh, the general public, the greater general public has very little interest in the topic of UFOs. Um, and if, if a, a casual observer was to look over at the UFO community and see what's going on, I don't see them. I don't see most people wanting to get in, involved in that in any way. So it's, it's kind of um, almost a self-destructive attitude. If you look at the, the whole community as a single body, it's like a, uh, a, a, a schizophrenic uh, kind of a attitude that you know they they're they're fighting against each other for no good reason. Yeah, but you know I think Andrew, I think that's true in a lot of fields. Um, I think if you get say involved in politics, you get involved in a political party, uh, you're probably going to have vicious disagreements and fights and conflicts. Uh, you go into academia, academics can be some of the most vicious uh, uh, opponents to, to one another. And uh, in, in a lot of, I think in a lot of groups, it, it, it can get like that. So That's a good point. I, I, yeah, I, right. I don't let it discourage me. Uh, it's irritating sometimes, I admit at times it's, it's irritating and annoying and even alarming personally, but I don't let that keep me from, from sticking with it, at least not up to this point. <laughs> yeah. And if, if, if what I'm saying is um, resonating with anybody, the, the only thing that I could say is that don't, you know, 
ad- adopt Tom's attitude and don't let other people dictate your motivation, your level of motivation about the topic. If you have an interest, get into it and do your own, uh, do your own footwork. If that's the right term, um, to, to find the answers that are satisfying to you, you know, cause that's really what the, the reward is, is when you look into this topic and you're trying to find answers by doing the work yourself and answering some of those questions, that's the real reward for this whole journey that we're on. I think at least it is for me. I can only speak for myself. Yeah. And there's plenty of, there's really a vast amount of literature out there. Um, the internet is just scratching the surface, but books, you know, there are plenty of good books and uh, there's plenty of UFO literature to dig into. Um, I really thought we would go longer because of uh, the amount of information that, that you've studied over the years. But I think this is a good place to to uh, at least pause the conversation for now, and then possibly give me a chance to read some more of your blog and learn more about the work that you've been doing, and formulate some more questions and come back at a later time and and, and continue the conversation. Would that be okay with you? Sure, I'd be glad to. Okay, I really enjoy talking with you. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you reaching out to me, and uh, it's been an interesting conversation. Uh, I know there's a lot more areas that we could discuss. I just need to increase my level of understanding about what you, the work that you're doing. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm glad that you're interested in learning more. That's a good thing. And uh, just let me know when you want to talk again. I'll be glad to do that. All right. So uh, with that, um, if you don't mind, give people your contact information one more time. And if you want to uh, plug some kind of project that you're working on or a group that you're working with. I know you mentioned MUFON before. Um, How can people get in contact with their local MUFON organization if they wanted to and that kind of thing. The MUFON website is MUFON.com and uh, there is a list of states and groups that meet within the states. So I suggest anyone that's interested in MUFON take a look at the MUFON.com website. My own blog is TomWhitmoreBlog.wordpress.com that's tomwhitmoreblog.wordpress.com. I suggest that you read my paper, MJ12, The Counterintelligence Angle. That's MJ12, The Counterintelligence Angle. Uh, I'm also on Facebook as Tom Whitmore, and I'm on Twitter at Tom Tulsa. That's at Tom Tulsa. Okay, I'll go ahead and follow you on all of those channels so we could stay connected. Did you, uh, did you also have a YouTube channel or the, the video that you mentioned earlier? Is that on somebody else's channel? No, it's, it's mine. It's Tom Whitmore. On YouTube. Um, yeah. Okay. So if you, 
if you put in MJ12, the counterintelligence angle, uh, and put Whitmore with that, you'll probably find it. And it's, I, I'm proud of it. So I encourage you to listen. I'll definitely check that out. That'll, uh, that's, like I said, that's the number one way for me to absorb information. If it and, weren't for my daughter, I would have never been able to get it on YouTube. <laughs> oh, well, good. Hats off to her for helping you with that. Uh, she's I, a millennial, I, so she knows what she's doing. <laughs> all right, Tom. Well, that's a good place to to uh, end the conversation. And uh, I really, again, I really appreciate you spending this time with me and having this conversation, sharing your information and uh Look forward to doing it again. Okay, thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it very much. And let's let's keep in touch, okay? Definitely. Yep. All right. All right. I'll talk to you later then. Take care now. Bye. Goodbye.